0: Thanks for listening to the World Religions Podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I'm teaching at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you might hear some people asking questions. Uh, Unfortunately, due to the nature of the podcast recording software, it probably is not going to come through, but I'll do my best to represent those questions fairly in a way that you can hear them. Other than that, everything should be good to go, so enjoy the podcast and thanks again for listening. We are approaching these various religions from what I'm calling our Mars Hill methodology. And this is all based on Paul's approach to evangelizing the Athenians on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. And so what we saw Paul do in Acts 17, we are attempting to lay a foundation to be able to do as we build relationships with people of other faiths. And so tonight, of course, we're talking about Islam. So we're going to look at a basic introduction to Islam's worldview, kind of get a taste of their history, how they see the world. uh then we're going to look at some areas of agreement between islam and orthodox christianity and again i think you will be shocked how similar our faiths are finally we're going to look at some areas of disagreement between islam and orthodox christianity the places where we have to kind of put a stake in the ground and say well we we can't at the end of the day just all hug and sing kumbaya and say it doesn't matter these are the things that matter uh, between our faith and islam and if we're going to have Truth-seeking conversations with Muslim friends, these are the places that event, that we have to get to. These are the places where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And so the goal of all of this is to equip you to build a truth-seeking relationship with someone who practices Islam, uh, a relationship in which both of you are earnestly seeking after truth and earnestly trying to find who God really is. And again, we believe because Jesus is the truth, that if we are earnestly seeking truth, then we are going to find Christ. And so we don't have to be afraid of entering into these relationships with people of other religions, because if we are seeking truth and they are seeking truth, then we're going to find Christ uh, at the end of that road. So we can do that uh, courageously. So let's talk about Islam. Here we go. Everyone ready? All right. First of all, we need to diffuse some myths about Islam, things that if we, if we, Hold these attitudes. If we hold these assumptions, then we're just not going to be able to build relationships with Muslim people. Uh, And there are things that are not—they're just not true uh, about every person who practices Islam everywhere. And we—we need to be able to acknowledge that and be able to move past it. So first of all, uh, we're just going to go right for the jugular. Islam is not irredeemably violent. And we're going to talk about this later when we talk about jihad, but. It is entirely possible for someone to be an honest, faithful, practicing Muslim and not be committed to a life of violence. Okay? Now, I know that that runs totally counter to what we think and hear, um, but that's not that's not necessarily the truth. Uh, second of all, we have to do a really good job of distinguishing between culture and religion. Now, I say that because no one ever does that ever anywhere. all right? In fact, if you look at, like, Eastern Europe and some of the little uh, former Soviet bloc countries, there are two groups of people that are constantly trying to kill each other. And one of those groups of people happens to be Christian, and one of them happens to be Muslim. And so it looks like a holy war. It looks like the Christians are fighting the Muslims, but that's not actually what's happening. It's two different ethnic groups of people that both have, for years, been getting killed by the other group, and they're, they're just trying to kill each other. But it, it really actually doesn't have anything to do with their faith. That just happens to be another cultural marker. And so we look at it and we say, oh, well, that's a holy war. And and the Christians are killing the Muslims or the Muslims are killing the Christians, depending on who's in power at that point. But it's not actually about religion. And, and, and frankly, we as Christians would look at what the Christians there are doing when they're burning down mosques or, or doing different things like that, and we'd say, well, that's, that's not that's not very Christ-like. We certainly wouldn't want, we certainly wouldn't do that in the name of Jesus. We don't think that that's what following Jesus looks like. And so if we're going to have that attitude, then it's not fair for us to turn around and say, well, I mean, look, those Muslims, they're just violent. What do you expect? That's what Islam is. Because we certainly wouldn't want that to be what was said about us as we practice our Christianity. So it's much more like the Hatfields and the McCoys, yes. Uh, it is much, much more like that. So uh, that's a great example. I'm going to steal that next time I teach this class. Thank you. Uh, uh, finally. Finally. Uh, there was a famous Christian leader who sometimes says things that are crazy, who referred to uh, the God of Islam, Allah, as the "quote-unquote" moon god of Mecca. Okay, and he was intentionally being polemical, but he was trying to draw a hard line in the sand and say uh, that, that our two religions don't worship the same God. That the Islam worships some kind of you know little fake pagan idol deity kind of thing, and we're going to talk about in a little bit again why that's. Sort of true, but actually not really helpful at all. And again, particularly if you're trying to build a friendship with Muslim people, this is just not an attitude you need to carry with you. Um, when you're talking about God with a Muslim, uh, it's much better to consider that we have a common shared history. And we'll see all of that later. But when we talk about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, Muslim people want to talk about that That God is their God as well. And so we're going to get into that. We're going to get into how that's okay and how that's not okay and, and all of that. But at the outset, we just need to see that Again, we just, we have to not take such a hard, polemical stance against Islam if we're going to try to build truth-seeking relationships with Muslim people. So, so we haven't really started yet. That was like the preface. Everyone ready to get started? Yeah, I have one right here. You can think, think. Um. Okay, so if we're going to talk about Islam, we need to go to the birthplace of Islam, which is mecca okay now in this time period mecca was a center of peace among all of the various warring arabic tribes so there are all these little tribes uh that sort of lived in that region what is now modern day like saudi arabia iraq all of that and they all fought like you know just like nomadic tribes tend to do uh over resources over land over different stuff like that and they established mecca this one particular city, as a place where you were not allowed to fight. And all of the various tribes respected that in Mecca, you just don't fight there. And so it became, as you can imagine then, a, cult, a, a cultural center. Uh, it, it was a nice place. Everyone wanted to be there because it was guaranteed to be peaceful. And it became a, it became a place of trade and religion. So uh, there, its primary shrine is called the Kaaba. And that's this big cube you see here. Uh, it was a, it was a built around a black meteorite. And no one really knows the full history. I mean, it's just been there forever. But the Kaaba, at the time that Muhammad was born, was filled with all of these idols from the various Arabic tribes and their various deities. And the chief god in this Arabic pantheon was named Allah. Okay, Now, Allah was sort of like Zeus or Baal, He was the the head god, the father of all the gods, and he was also like the rain thunder god, right? The one that they prayed to when they wanted like crops and rain and all of that kind of stuff. And then in addition to all of these indigenous tribal religions, Mecca was frequented by Jews, by Christians, and by Zoroastrians, which is the Persian religion, okay? And so in Mecca, you just had all of these different religious influences, all of these different cultural influences. Uh, And then, as I said, Allah was kind of the chief god, of the Arabic pantheon, okay? Now, into this world, Muhammad was born in 570, okay? Uh, He was was born to uh, parents who died when he was pretty young, and so he ended up living with an uncle who raised him, and when he uh, he began working, he began working for a caravan company that was run by a widow named Khadijah. And when he was 25, he ended up marrying her. And so he kind of married into this caravan business that operated out of Mecca. And so that caravan business put Muhammad in place to be able to be uh, interacting with tons of different people, tons of different cultures, religious influences, all that kind of stuff. So that was Muhammad's life for basically the first 40 years of his life. When Muhammad was 40, this is in 610, AD 610, Muhammad received his first revelation. Now, he was fasting in a cave, and he'd been there for several days, and a a spirit visited him and told him to take down, uh, basically to, to learn this stuff. Now, when Muhammad returned, he actually was afraid that he was under some kind of demonic possession or something like that. He didn't understand his experience. And so it was actually through talking with Uh, several different people who were close to him, some friends and some relatives, and particularly a Christian relative who convinced Muhammad that he had actually encountered the angel Gabriel and that these revelations that he was receiving were from the one true God. We don't know. Uh, His father's name had had Allah in it. I think it meant like servant of Allah or something like that, so probably... The religion that he would have practiced would have just been this one of the the nomadic tribal religions. But we, we really don't know for sure. Or at least I don't know for sure. Uh, so so eventually, under the guidance of, of some of these people, Muhammad became convinced that the God of Abraham was speaking to him. And, and furthermore, that, that Allah, this person that everyone thought was just this tribal pantheon deity, was actually the one true God. The God of Abraham. So, Muhammad did what all good spiritual leaders do. that He started teaching. He started delivering these revelations that he had received. And he started building up a little following in Mecca. Now, some of the things that he taught, actually sort of the core things that he taught, started to make waves and cause trouble in Mecca. And you can imagine why. He taught monotheism. He taught that there is only one God, Allah. Uh, he taught iconoclasm that the idols in the Kaaba are sinful, that they're that they're an affront to God, and that you shouldn't have them. We shouldn't worship them. They shouldn't be in there. They should be taken out and destroyed. And finally, uh, he was anti-user. He was anti-lending uh, at exorbitant amounts of money. And this is at what actually got him in a lot of trouble because this is when he finally started disrupting the business practices of the people in Mecca. And so that was when that was when things finally. They were like, all right, that's it, man. Big surprise, right? So, uh, several, pe- several key persons in Muhammad's life, his wife and the uncle that had raised him, uh, died. And Muhammad began to become afraid for his life. Uh, so, in uh, 619, he ended up fleeing from Mecca. He left Mecca and he and his followers kind of hit the road. So, uh, they sort of traveled around. And they ended up in 620, they were in Jerusalem. And Muhammad was up on the Temple Mount, which doesn't have a temple there anymore. Remember, it got destroyed in 70. And he experienced a vision. Well, actually, there's debate now about whether it was a vision or whether it actually happened. I think most Muslims think that he actually was assumed into heaven. Okay, so it's called the Night of Ascent, where Muhammad ascended from the Temple Mount up into heaven. And while he's in heaven, he meets Abraham, and he meets Jesus, and finally he meets Allah, God. And Allah confirms him as a prophet and then sends Muhammad back to earth. Now, this is why the Dome of the Rock is built where it is, on the Temple Mount, because that marks one of the most sacred spots on the earth for Muslims, because it's where Muhammad was taken into heaven and confirmed as a prophet. That's why, even though some of the Jewish people want to rebuild a temple there, uh, the Muslims are not interested in moving, right? Because this is now one of their sacred spots as well. So, in 622, uh, Muhammad ends up in the city of Yathrib. It's about 300 miles north of Mecca, and there, the city the city welcomes Islam and agrees to adopt the teachings of Islam. And so, this becomes year one in the Muslim calendar. Uh, what is our 622 is their year one, and everything's ta- uh, everything's measured from this date forward. Uh, Yathrib is eventually renamed Medina. Which means the city of the Prophet, and so this is the this is the beginning really of Islam. This is when it goes from just being kind of like a guy with a few crazy people following him to actually like an authorized religion that has a that has a place that is uh, well funded where he can teach and all of that. Uh, over the next now over the rest of Muhammad's life, he ends up he ends up getting back to Mecca and actually taking Mecca over, getting rid of all the idols in the Kaaba and and spreading Islam. But this this is where it all started. Okay. So any questions about the history uh, the kind of the life of Muhammad before we move into some of the key tenets of Islam? Yeah. Okay, so if, if the are they on the same calendar as Nope. Uh, so the question was if they're on if they, their year 1 is our 622, they're on a different calendar. And so they uh, like business people and think people like that, they just have to kind of translate, just like just like language, right? I mean, if you go to another country, you just have to do what they do when you're there. Uh, and if you want to do business with Japanese people, you better learn to speak Japanese because that's how they do stuff, you know. So yeah, exactly. So yeah, yes, um, yeah. He was uh, he was forty when he received his first revelation, so he was yeah like 40, 43 or actually almost fifty, I guess when he's on the run. The question was, was he a warrior in any kind of tribal wars or anything like that? Yeah, I don't know. My guess would be that he probably was handy with a sword if he worked on a caravan. I mean, you kind of, you know, you had to protect your caravan. And so uh, that that he was successful, would I, I would guess that he knew that kind of stuff. Um, but, but I don't know about that. Um, yeah, right. So, yeah, so good. Any other questions? Let's talk about some of the core tenets of Islam then. So Islam means submission. okay? Islam is the religion. It's submission to God. A person who submits to God is a Muslim. Okay so Islam is the religion. Muslim is a person who practices Islam. They are a Muslim. Uh, both of those words come from the Arabic root word Salam, which means peace, it's related to the Hebrew word Shalom. Okay, and so the idea here is that Islam is a religion that brings inner peace from submission to God. Right, and a Muslim is someone who seeks peace by way of submitting to God. (laughs) Salam, it's the Arabic word for peace. Okay. God in Islam is Allah, which Allah is not a name of God. Allah is the Arabic word God. So if we were Christians who had a church in an Arab country in Iraq or something like that, we would pray to Allah. But we would, the same way we say God here. When we say dear God, you know, help me have a good day, we'd say whatever dear is in Arabic, right? Dear Allah. Um, that's not a name. That's just the word God. Okay. In fact, in Arabic, in Islam, rather, God has ninety nine names. Yeah. Question in the back, Beth. Potato potato? Yeah. Probably depends on who you're talking to, what their accent's like. So it might I don't know Arabic, it might even depend on the part of the sentence it's in. I don't know. So I in Hebrew you emphasize the last syllable, so I tend to say Allah, but I don't it's not Hebrew. So um now in in Islam, very similar to Christianity and Judaism. God is all-powerful and transcendent. God created the world. And there's the same kind of tension in Islam that we have in Christianity and Judaism, that God determines everything, sort of. You know, in Christianity, you say, well, does God know the future? Does God cause, like, what? what's the, do we have free will? Or what is, Which, where is it in there? And people getting lots of fights and stuff. They have the same fights in Islam. Uh, in, in Islam, Allah has 99 names. And so uh, you'll actually see this a lot. You can Google a list of them if you want to know all of them. Their names like Merciful and Just and Compassionate, and again. Not, none of them are real surprising if you imagine what you would, how you would talk about God. Now, the other thing that's interesting about Islam, particularly for us, is that uh, in Islam you really have the same basic story as the Hebrew Scriptures and as the New Testament. You just have different players, a little bit. So, uh you have god making a covenant with abraham but instead of the covenant being fulfilled through abraham's second son isaac muslims believe that god fulfills the covenant through abraham's older son ishmael who's the patriarch of the arabic peoples okay and so abraham it actually uh, again ac- this is all according to the quran uh abraham is actually sacrificing ishmael on the mountain not isaac and uh and then uh, it actually, according to the Quran, Abraham and Ishmael are the ones that build the Kaaba, that place where the meteor is, the shrine for the meteor, and they consider that the first, the world's first mosque, the first place in the world that was built dedicated to worshiping Allah, to God. Uh, the first place they believe that the Kaaba, that that big, that was the was the first place. So, yeah, Joe. Uh, so this is a great question, and it's a question that's going to come up over and over and over again. The question is, well, wait a second, we have plenty of places in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, that clearly say that Isaac is the one that is the inheritor of the promise. So what do they do with that? Well, anyone want to take a guess what they do with that? Yeah. They say, well, the Quran says differently, and the Quran's the right one. So... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that, you know, that's something that's interesting when you look at the Old Testament itself, particularly the story of the patriarchs is over and over and over again. The firstborn is the one that gets set to the side. Uh, And if you just stop that right at Isaac and go with the firstborn, that that actually makes a lot more sense culturally. Uh, And again, there's volumes of commentaries written on the meaning of that. Why this, you know, it's an interesting theological issue for the Old Testament to address. So, um, now here's the thing, none of us were there, so we're all trusting our scripture. I mean, if we're going to get real about it, right, the only reason I believe that Isaac is the inheritor of the promise is because my Bible says so. So, I can't throw stones at a Muslim person for doing the same thing to me. Uh, And in fact, I've witnessed many a debate between a Christian and a Muslim break down at that point, where the Christian just keeps saying, well, the Bible says, and the Muslim's like, well, I don't don't care, the Quran says and the Christian says, Well, i care the Bible says, and it doesn't get anywhere. So uh, again, we'll get back into that later when we talk more about scripture. But uh that that's the that's the long answer to your question, Joe. And it's a great question. And again, if you build a truth-seeking relationship with a Muslim person, you're gonna hit that wall again and again and again. Uh so Moses and David are both in the Quran. In fact, all of the Old Testament heroes are considered prophets by the Quran. They're considered people that God anointed, that God sent with his message. And Jesus is in the Quran. Uh, the, the Muslims actually love Jesus like a crazy amount. Uh, I was shocked by this when I actually talked with some Muslim people and they told me like ha- what high regard they have for Jesus and how highly they think of him. Uh, and I was like, wait, my Jesus, the one in the New Testament? Like? And they're like, yeah, 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 I am. They call him Isa uh, in Arabic. And uh, so I want to spend a little bit of time, because it's of particular importance, talking about how the Muslims view Jesus. So, Jesus in Islam. Here are some things that Muslims believe to be true about Jesus. They believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They believe that Jesus taught disciples. They believe that Jesus did miracles through God's power. They believe that Jesus seems to have been crucified. We'll talk about that in a second. And they believe that Jesus ascended or was assumed into heaven by God. Um, I say seems to have been crucified because the Muslims teach, uh, believe that Jesus was not in fact actually killed. That it uh, God made someone else look like him. Some people think Judas. And then that person was crucified in his place. So everyone thought Jesus died. But in fact, God took Jesus up into heaven because we'll come back to it in a minute. Why? Because. Okay. It's for an important reason now uh, that jesus was assumed into heaven and that jesus is so again when muhammad ascended into heaven he met jesus up there that he was ascended assumed into heaven now here are some of the titles that the quran gives to jesus they call him the son of mary they call him a prophet just like abraham just like david just like moses just like muhammad They call him the Word of God, and they call him the Messiah. And the reason that they call him the Messiah, and the reason that they believe that he was assumed into heaven, is because Muslims believe that Jesus is going to be coming back to bring about the kingdom of God and to defeat the Antichrist. They believe there will be a person who comes at the end of time to raise armies against Allah, and that Allah will send Jesus to battle them and usher in God's kingdom. Anyone shocked? (laughs) Now, I put a quote on your paper that talks about, uh, it's a a passage from the Quran about, and I got to back up because it's on my last slide, but. What the Quran also says is this. In blasphemy indeed are those that say that Allah is Christ the Son of Mary. Say, who then hath the least power against Allah if his will were to destroy Christ the Son of Mary, his mother, and all, everyone that is on the earth? For to Allah belongs the dominion of the heavens and the earth and all that is between. He created what he pleased, for Allah has power over all things. Okay, so right there, the Quran is also quick to say, now Jesus is not God. Muslims believe that he was a human who, like many other humans throughout history, God chose to be a prophet. Now, they think he's a pretty awesome prophet. And again, it's like he's just like right below Muhammad as far as like important people in human history. But they, they believe he is only human. That he is not at all divine. Okay? So that's an important difference. And again, we'll get we'll get to that later. But when you're talking to a Muslim person, you can both talk about how much you like Jesus. That's a great place to start. Muslims will be able to quote Jesus' teachings to you. Okay? So, now let's go back into some of the... Uh, some of the important things that, oh yeah, go, Joe, go ahead. Uh, well, I, yeah, they, they would say that that's, uh, so again, their, their attitude towards the, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are that we got it, I mean, it was given to us by prophets, but it got corrupted and it, it wasn't a full revelation, and so God gave the full final revelation to Muhammad. Yes, that's that's something that you'll hear some people say. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's, that's you'll hear that sometimes, that it's translation issues. Okay. Uh, now, last week when we talked about Judaism, we talked about the difference between orthopraxy and orthodoxy, or the difference between... Focusing and emphasizing practice or emphasizing belief. And we said that Christianity tends to be an orthodox faith. We tend to focus on belief more than practice. And that Judaism is the reverse. Judaism focuses more on practice than on belief. Um, Islam really, I would say, is a religion of both. Um, the, The five pillars of Islam that we're going to talk about are definitely practices. They're things that you do. But the most heinous sins in Islam are sins of belief. Um, so I, I would say, if, you, if you're trying to choose, you know, there's uh, there's there's a couple of key core things that all Muslims must believe, or they're not Muslim. But then, what unites a lot of Muslims around the world is the things that they practice. Okay. Now, Muslim scriptures are the Quran. That's the the that's their holy book. Uh, Quran means recitation and uh, re- uh, like being recited so it's it's uh, Muslim or Muhammad sat and listened to God recite the Quran and so that's that's what it so the, the Quran is the collection of the things that God told Muhammad right the recitations so they have, they have to to correct uh now. Muhammad, uh, in fact, a lot of scholars think that Muhammad might have been illiterate, that he could not actually read or write, and so these teachings were preserved orally and delivered orally to his followers, and they mostly were not written down and collected until the years immediately following his death. And then after he died, his followers wrote all this stuff down, collected it all together, and then put it into what it was considered the authoritative version of the Quran. Uh, the Quran has 114 chapters. They're called surahs. And they're organized. I found this interesting. They're organized longest to shortest, which typically means that the the the, the surahs at the end of the Quran are actually the earliest ones. So they they also go sort of like latest to earliest. So if you if you uh, I was a, I actually read somewhere that if someone's trying to read the Quran for the first time, they want to start at the back because that's really where the easiest ones are. The, the shortest ones. Uh, yeah, the Quran is written in Arabic and only the Arabic is considered authoritative. I, I have a I have a translation of the Quran that I picked up in English, but it's not considered what a good Muslim would use in worship. And like when they do prayers and things every, everything is conducted in Arabic because that language is that's the language God spoke it to Muhammad in, so it's considered more sacred. Uh, this isn't this isn't too different from the attitude that a lot of Catholics had towards the Latin towards the Vulgate uh, and, you know, when Vatican... And any of you who are old enough to remember Vatican II, that was like a huge deal for a lot of Catholic people because the Latin was... Even though they didn't understand it, right? The Latin was sacred. Uh, and that was it was the holy language. And Why would you do something else? Um, I don't want to start any fights, but I've also heard some Christians talk that way about the King James, okay? Um, I'm way on the other end of the spectrum. I'm like, look, I, what I actually care about when you read the Bible is that you can understand it. So if you can understand the King James, fine. Read it and love it. If you need the message, okay? Like, what I really want is for you to understand it. So read whatever you want to read, whatever you can understand. You're not going to offend me. Um, but again, I'm also not Muslim. So now, the other Muslim scriptures are the Hadiths. Okay, now these are not considered as authoritative as the Quran, right? The Quran is the most important book, but Hadiths are collections of traditions about Muhammad that were not in the Quran. So these, are all, in fact, a lot of what we know about Muhammad's life come from these hadiths, okay? Um, the largest and most influential collection is uh, from a man named al-Bukhari. And when I was Google image searching pictures of that, like there were multiple volumes of it. just like a, this enormous collection of these stories. And what's interesting is that a lot of these can, can tend to be contradictory. And so this has given rise to a, a large... Scholarly attitude in Islam, because they would have these different uh, traditions that don't match, and they would have to try to figure out how to how to hold them together. So, uh, so there's there's a lot of scholarship in Islam now. Like with every other religion, this has created kind of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, what we would call the more conservative end of the spectrum, uh, people think uh, Muslim people think that reason is basically pride. You shouldn't try to question Allah. You shouldn't try to figure things out. Just God said it, and that should be all you care about. Um, and these are the Muslims who also tend to believe that Allah determines everything, that there is no free will, that everything that happens is just the way Allah wants it, and you should like it. Okay? Now, on the other end of the spectrum are what we would call more li- more liberal Muslims, and they say reason is good. It's good to ask questions. God gave us a brain, and we should be able to use it. And We can kind of figure out God, and they also then unsurprisingly tend to believe in free will. Now again, if we had time, we'd talk about all the ways that there are these same kinds of discussions happening in Christianity all the time. Right? We have the same divides, the same arguments, uh, same people on both sides of the fence fighting with each other. So, so out of all of this, uh, what you pro- if you know anything about Islam, you probably know about the five pillars. These are the five pillars of the faith, the things that hold your faith up. These are practices that Muslims say that all Muslims should do because they hold, they support your faith. They're the pillars. Okay? I listed these for you on your worksheets. Uh, the first one is the Shahada, or the Shahada. And this is the this is the Muslim testimony or the creed. Okay? Uh, if you convert to Islam, this is the thing that you have to say and believe, and that's what makes you a Muslim. Okay, there's no baptismal rite, there's no dedication, there's no anything like that. It's just, you say this and you believe it, and then you're a Muslim. And that confession is, you've probably heard it before, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. Okay, so this is, last week when we talked about Judaism, we talked about the Shema, that daily prayer. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And we've talked about how many faithful Jews pray that every day. Same kind of thing. Uh, in Muslim prayers, this, this confession, this creed, this testimony is incorporated. and So when they pray, uh, they're they're proclaiming this and they're believing it. So that's that's the first pillar. The second one is Salat, which is prayer. Uh, Muslims pray five times a day facing the Kaaba in Mecca. Wherever you are in the world, you're supposed to face towards the Kaaba. And then the prayers are recited in Arabic. Again, it doesn't matter what language your native tongue is, you pray in Arabic. And the prayers focus on gratitude towards and worship of God. Of praying five times a day. Uh, the third one is zakat. This is alms giving. This is charity giving to the poor, and this is another cornerstone of Islam. So some countries today actually just have this as a tax. If you live in this country and this country is Muslim, then they just tax you the two and a half percent, and that's it. It just and that that then all goes to charity, right, to helping the poor. Uh, something I found really interesting when I was doing my research is uh, if you recall last week, I mentioned that during the Middle Ages when a lot of Jews and Christians were fleeing persecution and finding haven in Muslim countries, and all they had to do if they wanted to keep practicing their own religion was pay a, pay, pay a tax, I found out that the reason for that tax was this. Uh, they said, well, you're not a Muslim, so you're not probably going to be giving to charity, at least, like, not. you don't have to. And so we we just tax you, because if you live here, you got to give to the poor. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So 2.5% and I, I saw some different things. I think it's I think it's actually two and a half percent of your total assets, not your income. So I don't know how you figure that, but it's everything you own, not just a little bit. So uh, the fourth pillar is uh, called Sarm, and it's fasting. So this is fasting sun up to sundown during Ramadan. Now Ramadan is the month of the Muslim calendar when when Muhammad first received his first revelation. And so you fast all through the month of Ramadan. Then, as the day of the first revelation approaches, you start having, you start getting ready, and you throw a huge party. So uh, there's some flexibility in this. For instance, uh, there were several Muslim athletes who competed in the Olympics this this last year, and the Olympics were held during Ramadan. So obviously, if you're a world-class athlete, it's probably not the best idea to be fasting all day and then trying to run a race or swim or something like that at night. And so, depending on the country that the uh, that the athletes were from, the Rules were either just there or relaxed, and again, it just kind of depended on who you were and where you were and what kind of Islam you followed, and all of that. So, and then the fifth pillar is the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage. This is done now. There is a particular month during the Muslim calendar every year that the Hajj is held, uh, but it is a pilgrimage to Mecca and to the Kaaba, and every able-bodied and able meansed Muslim. Is expected to do this once in their life. Okay, if you if it is physically possible and financially possible for you to do it, you're expected to go to Mecca once in your life. Uh, obviously, some Muslims choose to do it more than once, uh, but that's what you're supposed to do. And then there's all there's a whole set of rituals in uh, Mecca for that part of it. But uh, I well, I'm sure that I'm sure that traditionally it was just men. But uh, there are women that do it today, and there are lots of rituals. There's separate rituals for men and women and all of that. So, Okay, any questions about the five pillars? Okay, good. Let's talk about the sixth pillar then. Uh, jihad is often called the sixth pillar of Islam because it is, so, it is such a central aspect of Islam, and you're probably wondering when we were going to get to it. So, uh, jihad means struggle. And uh, I think that this is probably one of the most misunderstood and feared concepts in Islam due mostly to those extremist groups. So, the Quran teaches that there are two kinds of jihad. There is a greater jihad and a lesser jihad. The greater jihad is the struggle against one's own inner self. Okay? It says that, that I am sinful and i need to struggle against that to bring myself into submission to god and that that is a struggle and so that is that's the greater jihad the lesser jihad is what probably most of us are familiar with which is the attempt to bring the whole world into islam into submission to god when we think of holy war This, we think of an incarnation of the lesser jihad. So the question we need to ask then is what, you know, what do we do about Muslims? Particularly when we've just said, okay, their goal, and now the vast majority of Muslims in the world, of all of the, like, one billion some Muslims that exist in the world, Do not practice violent, lesser jihad. But, we obviously know there are some, and whether they practice it violently or not, it's a stated goal that any Muslim will agree with, that their goal is to submit the entire world to Islam. So how do Christians engage that? Well, uh, the first week we talked about what I call the golden rule of evangelism, which is you evangelize other people the way that you would wish to be evangelized, and I think that goes for all of this as well. So there are several points I want to make about this. First of all, violent persons who happen to be Muslim do not represent all Muslims. Uh, the Quran does authorize violence, but it's always in response to injustice, and it specifically excludes targeting civilians, women, and children. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So there are there are a few verses in the Quran that that are basically like that, where it says you, you authorize violence against someone who doesn't convert. Uh, the problem with that is there are just as many verses in the Bible that say those same kinds of things. I think about the Canaanite genocides or basically anything in First Kings and stuff like that. And what you see actually in the long tradition of Muslim scholarship is most Muslim scholars, theologians, people like that, look at those verses and they... they interpret them in such ways that they pull away from just smiting infidels uh the the that va- like the the vast majority of the muslim tradition of interpretation says that's not how you read those verses now undeniably people in certain people who claim to be muslim interpret those verses that way and use them as justification for violence the question is whether you in your own heart and mind allow that person to represent islam and I would say, if you do that, shame on you, because that's no different than saying, than someone coming up and saying, "All you Christians, bomb abortion clinics and picket military funerals." We go, "Whoa! Don't let me in, don't let me in those whack jobs. Like that's not the Jesus I know. That's not the Jesus I follow." And again, the 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 overwhelming testimony of the Muslim tradition is that those verses are not carte blanche for going out and killing people that aren't so, and again, I would particularly say, if you're trying to build a truth-seeking relationship with a Muslim person, don't come up and say, are you just going to jihad me when I turn around? Like, that's, that's. I mean, that's not, that's not how you build a relationship. And again, I, in my experience, and I've met a decent number of Muslim people, that's that's not the kind of people that they tend to be. So, Angel, do you have a question? Okay. They who? The uh, Muslims who are these nice Muslims. Sure, okay, so so I, I would say, I guess, again, in my experience, I did experience that. I experienced a lot of Muslim people. Oh, of course, we're going to get to the media in a little bit, but of course you didn't, because that doesn't sell. <laughs> um,. We're going to get to that a little bit because that's we – got, we got to talk about the media. But how, how both of us are – how both religions are misrepresented in the media. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Pick, pick something in the media misrepresents, okay? So, um, uh, now, again, something that's and, – and something that's interesting, if you want to go all the way back to the, the roots of the faith, Muhammad actually commanded his followers not to attack – Jews and Christians who were living among them, to live at peace with them. And his thought was essentially what we call today lifestyle evangelism. He was convinced that if Muslims lived in peace with Jews and Christians, that we Christians and our Jewish friends would be so convinced of the truth of Islam that we would convert voluntarily. Okay? And so, Muhammad's version of the lesser jihad, the jihad that was trying to submit the whole world to Islam, was particularly for Jews and Christians, just live at peace among them. Now, again, that doesn't mean that that's the attitude of every Muslim person everywhere. It doesn't mean it's the attitude of every person who uh, claims to follow Islam. And, again, we cannot at all deny the reality that a lot of really nasty stuff has been done in the name of Islam. But I'm not going to start throwing those stones because we have way more blood on our hands as Christians. And I, I do not want someone of another faith lumping me in with all of those people. And so I, following Jesus' example and the golden rule, cannot do that to them. Um, now, I'm going to get you even more mad. Uh, or they pick and choose. I mean, here's the thing. We'll just talk about our own mess for a minute. If you want to do something, you can find a Bible verse that gives you license to do it. And I think we probably all know people who do whatever they want, and then they slap the Jesus label on it and say, well, yeah, see, I I found this Bible verse, so it means God's okay with it. And in your head, you're like, you're insane. I don't know much, but I know God's not okay with that. Like, any idiot with half a brain knows that. And and again, you find that in every religion. Uh, the reason we don't even have time for this, but we gotta say it. Religion is insanely powerful. Okay? When when you're talking about belief in God, when you're talking about worldview, when you're talking about trying to understand the way the world works, that carries a tremendous amount of power with it. And if you are a person who wants to cause damage and you want to get people on your side, you want to get people up behind you, you cannot find a better weapon than religion, maybe politics put them together, you're unstoppable. And so that's why you see, that's why every single week we've talked about some aspect of a religion and and then someone's raised their hand and been like, well, yeah, but I I mean, I know people that are that religion and they don't do that way. Well, yeah, of course. Just like we can take any single teaching of Jesus, pull it out of the scripture, hold it up and say, anyone know someone that doesn't do this? And we're like, yeah. So... I, again, I think the, I think that the question is uh, how we're going to engage people who really see the world differently than we do, you know. And are we just going to stereotype them? Are we going to make assumptions about them, or are we going to try to give them the benefit of the doubt the way we want to have the benefit of the doubt, right? The way we don't want to get lumped in with Westboro, or maybe you do, and then we need to talk. So yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, so that's actually what I kind of wanted to talk about next. So the question was um, maybe if this lesser jihad is something that's spread by, um, spread by infiltration. And so uh, probably most of us in here have heard about Sharia law, right? Okay, so Sharia law is a, is, is a thing in Islam, and the, the idea behind Sharia law is that it's Islam, your entire life, should be submitted to God. And so Sharia law is a legal system that makes sure that your entire life is submitted to God. It's a very public life. It's a very all-encompassing, holistic uh, kind of system. Uh, now, just like with Christians, right, the degree to which individual Muslim people actually want Sharia law, actually think it's a good idea, actually even agree about what counts as Sharia law, varies from person to person, from country to country. Right there, and and we'll get into this when we get into the historical development of Islam next. But um, there was a long time when Islam had a single ruling figure that kind of called all the shots. That's not the case anymore. And so now, depending on the different countries that you go to, you'll get different flavors of Islam and different levels of uh, commitment to it, or I don't know how you, different ways you practice it, different degrees of like fundamentalism and stuff like that. Um, now I've if you never want to talk to me again after this, that's fine. But I just have to tell you my take on what it really means to follow Jesus even when it hurts. Okay? The lesser jihad, and this is kind of what Kay was talking about, might look like an American Muslim coming in, uh, an American Muslim, right? Someone who's an American citizen, has all the voting rights and all of that. Voting to support legislation in accord with Muslim values. Right? I mean, something like that. You can imagine, right? Oh, this this looks like what I want, so I'm going to vote for it. What we all do? Okay, If the golden rule applies to everything, it applies to politics, too. And, and we, as American Christians, should celebrate a Muslim person's right to vote for whatever laws they want. If we want the right to vote for whatever laws we want. Because that's the golden rule. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. It doesn't mean we have to agree with their votes. It doesn't mean we have to vote for things that look like Sharia law. Any of that. But it, just, it does just mean uh, that they should have the right to participate in our legal system the same way we do. And I I do not think, and I will never think, that the battle for individual souls happens at a ballot box. That's why the focus of this class is how to build truth-seeking relationships with other people. Because I think that it's in it's in the process of friendship, in extending the grace and the love of Christ to another person that hearts and lives are changed. So I'm not hopefully you did not hear me say and putting Sharia law on the next ballot and voting for it, because that's not it at all. Um, But we we have to figure out a way to see where we agree, to see how we can work together for common good, all the while continuing to proselytize each other. I don't expect Muslim people to try to stop converting me, because I'm not going to stop trying to convert them. I'm going to do it out of love, and I'm going to do it the way Jesus calls me to, And I'm going to hope that I get something similar in return from them. All right. Stir up the pot enough. Oh, sure. I, I mean, I agree with that. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm more concerned with what Jesus thinks than the Founding Fathers, and I'll, I'm going to leave it there because uh, we got to get going. But I, under, I understand that fear. I understand that belief. Um, but at the end of the day, that is not an excuse to not act like Jesus. And I'm not saying that you do. I'm saying I've witnessed it, though. And at the end of the day, anything that pulls us away from God is sin. And if that also means the way we fight with other religions, it, it's still sin. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, let's go on. Let's talk about the historical development of Islam. We may still run out of time. we got to get to the Trinity. Okay. Immediately following Muhammad's death. There was disagreement among his followers about who should be leading Islam. Okay? And so there was a short 3-year period where there were four different leaders, the last three of which got assassinated. Okay? This was called the Orthodox Caliphate. This was the season in which the Quran was authorized and finished. Okay? And shortly after that, Islam was taken over by Syrians. Okay? So it moved the center of Islam moved away from Mecca towards Damascus, and so this was called the Damascus Caliphate. It lasted for about 100 years. Uh, Now, this happened because the Persian Empire and the Byzantine Roman Empire were both on the decline, and so it allowed Syria to conquer a lot of territory. By 710, which was, again, only about 100 years after Muhammad's first revelation, they controlled basically all of North Africa, and they were coming up into Spain. Okay? Now they were stopped in 732 at the Battle of Tours by Charles Martel, who's the grandfather of Charlemagne, and the Battle of Tours is what halted Muslim expansion into Europe. Okay, but Muslims remained in Southern Spain until the late 1400s when Ferdinand and Isabella expelled them. Okay? Now, during this period, during this Damascus Caliphate, Muslim culture was heavily influenced by Rome. Okay? Now after 750 the center of islam again moved and it moved this time to baghdad okay and this was the golden age of islam okay this period was witness to heavy greek influence and when you think greek just think or uh, it was persian and so because it was persian it was greek and so while Is- uh, while europe was in the dark ages while we were losing our literacy while the roman empire was in its slow decline in the west Islamic culture was flourishing. It was making making massive leaps forward in science, mathematics, education. Uh, I'm sure that all of you know we do not use Roman numerals today. We use Arabic numerals. Okay, Arabs invent, uh, Muslims invented the zero and totally changed how we do math and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and the only reason that we actually still have things like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle is because they were preserved by these Muslim empires while we were all in the Dark Ages. Okay, and then once we sort of climbed out of the Dark Ages and got into the Renaissance, it was through contact with these Muslim cultures that still had all of this stuff. And we were like, oh yeah, we have heard about that stuff. Can we read it too? Now, the Mongols conquered Baghdad in 1258, and then the center of the Islamic world moved to Egypt for a brief amount of time. But then, uh, after that, the Ottoman Empire took over. and the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, as you can see from the timeline, ruled for a long time. Uh, the Ottoman Empire conquered Constantinople in 1453 which marked the end of the Eastern Roman Empire and the Ottomans ruled most of the Middle East until 1921 to the end of World War one and after they lost World War one the Western European powers just basically carved it up and they weren't they we weren't particularly careful how we did it we just sort of like drew some lines on a map and so uh, much of the conflict that's going on in the Middle East today actually goes back to that. Because we didn't pay any attention to ethnic groups or uh, different branches of Islam or any of that kind of stuff. And so like in Iraq, for instance, you have two different branches of Islam that are basically 50-50. And they just fight with each other all the time. And We made Iraq. So. Uh, today, now today, Islam isn't led by a single person or nation like we said. So, it's practiced to a different degree and to uh, by di- in different ways, depending on who and, and where you are. Okay? So, let's talk about the different branches of Islam today. Uh, first of all, there is uh, Sunni Islam. Uh, Sunni is the vast majority of Muslims, like probably 85-90%. Like okay? And the goal of Sunni Islam, at least in theory, is a public life shaped by Islam. Okay, that kind of that Sharia law that we were talking about, that idea of that that all aspects of your life should be shaped by submission to God. Now, the thing that's interesting about it is because it is so popular, because it is so widespread, it has produced a whole spectrum of people. What we would call cultural Muslims and also like sort of reactionary fundamentalist groups. Okay, everything and everything in between. Just Again, just like in Christianity, right? You have some people that say they're Christian but don't really ever do anything Christian. Maybe they show up at church a couple times, but that's it. And then you have people that are like crazy hardcore Christians. You look at it and you're kind of like, whoa, okay. Uh, and and Sunni Islam is is very similar. Again, mainly because it's just so broad. Uh, the next division is called Shiite Islam. Shia, also you'll, you'll probably hear it called. Um, the Shias believe that the uh, that. Islam's uh, ruling should have been hereditary, and so they look at that fourth caliph who got assassinated, Ali is his name, Uh, he was a cousin of Muhammad, and they say he was the true ruler, and then he had a son named Hussein, who was a ruler who also got assassinated. And so Shia Muslims consider Hussein to be a martyr, someone that they revere and imitate, obviously we know a few famous people who have that in their name. Uh, now, Shias also believe, they're, they're sort of the more, um, I don't know what the right, exactly the right word for it, like spiritual of the branches of Muslim, uh, of Islam. Uh, they believe in something called the light of Muhammad, which is God's spiritual power that was passed down through through uh, through the genes, through the hereditary, uh, to these 12 different imams. And the last of those imams disappeared sometime around 900 and then uh, the Shia Muslims believe that he will return to guide Islam into the uh, Messianic Age. Now, you have probably heard some of this before. Because in Iran, which is mostly Shia, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini claimed to be the 12th Imam. Right? He claimed he was this guy come back and he was going to usher the world into the Messianic Age. Okay. And what's interesting about this branch of, of, of Islam is that no one agrees over who the 12 imams are, and there's a lot of, like, argument and discussion about this. And because they believe that the imams have this special light of, of Muhammad in them, they, they have a lot more power and prestige uh, than non-Shi'ite Muslims, right? They look at them as, like, someone special. Hussein was a Shi'ite Muslim? And so I don't know that he did – I don't know if he ever claimed to be an imam or anything like that. But, yeah, I mean, that's part of the problem in Iraq is, uh, is over half Shiite, which is unusual because, again, most of the Muslim world is Sunni. And so, But because, because Iran and Iraq are both primarily uh, uh, Shiite, mainly because a lot of them are non-Arab, a lot of them are Persian. And so this, play, this, this, this particular branch of Islam plays to non-Arab Muslims. I don't know for sure. I actually asked that same question when I was researching. I would assume they just think they both come back and the two are better than one. I, guess. I and, and really, I mean, that's I, we chuckle a little bit, but neither of them are God. Neither of them are God's son. They're both just people. So I don't know that it would actually be that bad for them both to to come back. It might be that. It might be, and again, I'm, I don't know, so I'm just sort of guessing. It might be that the 12th Imam is more of like a John the Baptist or an Elijah figure who comes to kind of prepare, and then Jesus is the one that actually brings the kingdom. I, I, I don't know. But be, particularly because neither of them is divine, uh, it, I don't know that there's a whole lot of conflict for them. So, but that's a, that's a great question. that was the title he used I think that just means king I think that's like a title that they use for king but i but I don't know I don't know about that title is there a question in the back uh I think it depends I mean there are it there are radicals in a lot of different countries um uh yeah I, I think most of them are Sunni um, because most, they, uh, the Sunni Islam has tended to produce the more fundamentalist groups, and those are the groups that then lead, then lend themselves, yeah, I, I think so. Again, I don't know for sure, but I, I believe so. I think they're Sunnis. They're Sunnis. So, um, Iran is mostly Shiite, Iraq is, again, just just over half. Shiite, and that's why there's so many problems with the government in Iraq because you have to have two different groups that are almost 50/50 close enough that they can't agree on anything to come and yeah yeah Right right right, right, and it's everything happening in Iran right now is really really too bad. I have a couple friends that are that are from Iran, and they still are in contact with family that are over there, and they say, you know it's just the way that the the way that the government is controlling the people and and all of that it's just it's disgusting uh there's really just not a better word for it, so. Um, okay, the last group is the Sufi. This is the, the mystical branch. If you've ever heard of whirling dervishes or anything like that, these are, these are Sufi Muslims. Um, now, this came out of an interaction with Christian monastics, and so they, they, they again have like a mystical bent. And there are a lot of other Muslims in the other two branches of Islam that are just not really sure what to do with the Sufis. Uh, because of the language they use, they use very intimate language of Allah. Um, they talk about being, u- uh, being united with the law, which sounds like heresy because you're saying you're, you're one with God and things like that. Um, so so there, th- this is, a, this is a, a, a branch of Islam that makes the other branches very uncomfortable, uh, and it's, it's a pretty small branch. So Okay, we gotta, we got to burn through this because I will not leave without talking about the Trinity. Um, other Muslim practices. Eating halal, that is very similar to eating kosher. Uh, halal for- refers to foods that are allowed. Harem is foods that are forbidden, okay? Um, There's also, just like kind of what got Muhammad in trouble in the first place, prohibitions against usury and gambling. Oh, also, sorry, in harem, alcohol is also considered harem, so Muslims don't drink. Hmm. Uh, Muslims also practice circumcision, again, very similar to the Jewish people. Uh, Something you've also probably heard, particularly because it's caused some waves lately, is that there's a prohibition in Islam against making images, so you're not supposed to make a picture of God. You're not supposed to make pictures of the prophet uh, Muhammad or stuff like that. So a lot of times when you see Muslim art, you'll see it's, it's, it's like letters and numbers, and it's just like abstract designs and things like that. There are a few exceptions to this, but again, you've heard this starting fights before. Uh, the TV show South Park got in a big... Hubbub because they wanted to have Muhammad as a character on their show and you can't do that uh, you can't make an image of Muhammad it actually had nothing to do with it being on South Park it was because of an image of Muhammad and so uh, they actually didn't get to make that episode and all kinds of stuff so um, and then the other thing is uh, marriage and gender roles tend to be more conservative they tend to be more complementarian though again this is this is something that's that tends to be more cultural and so. Uh, it, it actually, what, what a woman does or does not do in Islam really is going to depend on where you are and what culture they're in. And this this is probably one of the, and this is probably in anyone, but this is one of the places that Islam is really trying to figure out who it is right now uh, and what what thing what teaching in the Quran they hold on to and what, what things they kind of modernize. And so where this really comes down to it is particularly with the role of women and uh, the hijab or the burqa. So... You know, Muslim women are supposed to wear headscarves, head coverings. And just a couple of stories that demonstrate, I think, how complicated this issue is. Yeah. Why is it a that Well, com- it's actually similar. If you remember last week we talked about Orthodox Judaism, that Orthodox women went out and they had either wigs or they kept their hair covered. In a lot of ancient uh, Middle Eastern cultures, uh, women's hair was considered seductive. And so it was only to be seen by either your husband or someone in your immediate family that you were not going to be having sexual uh, congress with and so that it's it became kind of a tradition and it just sort of stayed in in both orthodox judaism and in a lot of islam now when i was in egypt which is 95 percent muslim uh it muslim islam is the dominant religion there's there's no like it, it's islam everywhere you go there's 500 giant mosques on every corner i mean it's 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 a muslim country i saw women in like a t-shirt and jeans not wearing any head covering at all I saw women in headscarves. I saw women in the full burkas. And and it just it was kind of like what whatever whatever you want to do. Yeah, that's that's your thing. Uh in I was walking down a, a street similar to like a like like Fifth Avenue in New York, lots of shops and stuff like that in Cairo. And in the same window of the same shop on two mannequins next to each other was a full burqa with like a a like a mesh over the eyes. And then like a frankly really scandalous clubbing outfit that you'd see on a girl in a club in America. And they were on mannequins right next to each other and I was like, really? Oh. I guess. I mean Yeah. Yeah, but but my again my point is like when when Islam is the dominant culture, it was it was just sort of whatever 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 like you said whatever floats your boat. Now, when I was in Jerusalem, which is part Muslim, part Jewish, and part Christian, and they all fight with each other, um, any Arab woman who was Muslim had a headscarf on it. Because if you were an Arab woman and you were not Muslim, or if you were an Arab woman and you were not Muslim, you were Christian, you didn't wear a headscarf. And so there, it actually didn't matter what your feelings were about headscarves, you wore it as a cultural marker. You wore it so that everyone would know whose side you were on. Okay? And so again, that's what I'm saying. The The... the the line between culture and religion often gets blurred. And and you just have to be really careful when you're you're approaching these relationships on sussing that out, right? And figuring out what's what and how you do what you do. Um, When Islam began, it was actually very progressive for women. A lot of the rules that Muhammad passed were for their day very uh, liberating. He allowed women to own property. He he actually, I, I don't know if he invented alimony, but he was, the, he was one of the first people to say that if a, woman, if a man divorced a woman, he had to pay her. So just not, like, abandon her. Uh, some stuff like that. So uh, all I'm saying, I guess, again, just know that this whole discussion about gender and Islam, it's very, very complex. And I thought it would be fun to show this cartoon because I think it sa- spe- speaks to it very well. The American woman says, everything covered but her eyes with a cruel male-dominated culture. And then the Muslim woman says, nothing covered but her eyes. What a cruel, male-dominated culture. So it kind of depends on what side of the on. Now, uh, in the very brief time we have left, I want to talk about building some bridges to Islam. Uh, first of all, we worship the same God, at least historically speaking. There is a lot in common about the nature of God. There's some big important things that are not the same, which we're going to get to in a second. But, Talking about who God is is can be a good place to start. Second of all, we both value a relationship with God. You can talk to a Muslim person about their relationship with God. Uh, both of us love Jesus. Again, I was shocked to be able to talk with Muslim people about how much Muslim people revere Jesus, how much they respect him, how much they like his teachings. If you're looking for a good place to start a conversation with a Muslim, you can do a lot worse than talking about Jesus. And a really, really good place to start. Both of us value family and tradition. Very, very important. And we both value spiritual practices. Again, things like prayer and stuff like that. Okay, now. Let's talk about where we disagree. I want to get those written down. I want to give you enough time. Okay. <clears> okay. <throat> Many Muslims think that Christians are actually polytheists in disguise. Okay, In Islam, confessing any god but God is the worst heresy. It's the only unpardonable sin. Okay, Now, this is the divisive issue for Christians and Muslims, is the true nature of God. To Muslim theologians, the doctrine of the Trinity seems like polytheism dressed up as monotheism. Okay, Muslims teach there is only one God, that no one is like God, and that no one is on God's level. Okay, It's so, so, so important in Islam that you put God on the highest pedestal you can imagine, and then higher than that. And there's nothing else that can even come close. So, when Christians say that Jesus is God, that's a huge problem for Muslim people. And they say, well, okay, so you basically just have three gods then, right? But Christians actually, we agree with Muslims on this point. We say that to put anyone else on God's level, that is heresy. To make anything else besides God, God, that is idolatry. So the question that we have to ask is, how can we say that and say that Jesus is God? Right. That is the sticking point. It's the nature of Jesus. So that's what we have to talk about. And to do that, we need the help of the Christian creeds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And, and what's interesting, there's a book that I gave you on the very last page of your handout before the Athanasian Creed that's back there, which we'll get to in a second. I gave you a book by my favorite living Christian theologian. Uh, his name is Miroslav Wolf. He is Serbian. He grew up in a, war, in a country where Muslims and Christians fought all the time. And so his question, it's all, the book is called Allah, A Christian Response. And so he goes through and talks about uh, where Christians and Muslims agree about God and where they disagree. And he actually sat down with leading living Muslim scholars to talk about this stuff. And then he talks about their conversations in the book. And uh, this is the sticking point. This is. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible book. So the difference here, and we're going to try to understand the Trinity in like five minutes, so we're going to do the best we can. There is a difference in the Christian tradition between making and baguetteing. Okay? and in the, in the Nicene Creed, we actually even say that we say that Jesus is begotten, not made, of the Father. Okay, now the difference is this: when you make something, you're making something that's different from you. Any of you, any of you ever done any woodworking, scrapbooking, any 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 kind of craft? Even if you made a bean art picture in preschool. Okay, if you have made something, you know you're not making something that is like you, right? You're making something that is different from you. And so, th- what, this is where Muslims get hung up. They say, no, look, God creates. God doesn't have children. We say, well, actually, we do agree with that. We think that God makes. And we don't think that God has any biological children. Right? We, we don't think, uh, maybe you don't know this, I'm telling you this, we do not think that Jesus is God's biological child. Okay, that When, when we talk about Jesus' sonship, that is not what we mean. Uh, What we are talking about in there is the the process of begetting, which is making something that is of the same substance of you. And if you do any kind of research on Christian Trinitarian theology, you will see that word over and over and over. Same substance, same substance, same substance. We believe that this father-son language is not literal. Again, Jesus is not literally God's biological kid. There wasn't a point when God was up in heaven and was bored and decided, You know what I need? I, I need a kid. I'm going to make one. Okay. Th- now that is the picture that Muslims have of Christian theology, right? That 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 Jesus is God's biological child, or they that, that maybe even not biological, but that God created a son, and then and then we think that He's God also. We put Him on the same level, so that there's two gods. I don't know. That's a good question, and well, I, what I will say is in that book that I mentioned earlier, uh, when when the Christian theologian was actually talking with the Muslim theologians, and he got he actually got them to understand the difference here, and they actually were able to say, oh, well, what you believe about the Trinity does not contradict Muslim theology. So now there was still obviously a barrier because then that's still not that's still short of saying Jesus is the Son of God, but it was an interesting progression. Now, um. Christians affirm that all three persons of the Trinity are co-equal. That that they are co-eternal. That no one of them is superior to any of the others. That there's no hierarchy. And most importantly, that they are one God. They are one substance. So when a Muslim says, we don't think there's any God but God, we're like, yeah, we think that too. Just like the Jews do. And when they say, we don't think that God has any kids, we're like, yep, we don't think so either. You're right about that. Um, The sticking point, though, then, is what do we do with Jesus? And this gets to the very, very heart of the disagreement between Christianity and Islam. The very, very heart of the reason that this isn't all just one big happy family. In Islam, the most important thing that you need to know about God is that God is transcendent. That God is above you. That God is uh, every is above everything. Now, one of the ninety-nine names of God is Al-Wadud, which is the loving. But that's just one aspect of God, and it's held in tension with all the other aspects of God. And the most important thing about God is that God is far above everything else. In Christianity, God is fundamentally love, Orthodox, Trinitarian. Christian theology says that when God is most fully God is when God is in self-giving relationships. That's why the Trinity is so important. Because God is in a constant relationship where he's just constantly giving himself to the other members of the Trinity. The Father's giving himself to the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit's giving himself to the Father and the Son. The Son's giving himself to the Father and the Spirit. And that's always going on. And God doesn't need us to be God. And so creation, everything, us, you and me, our relationships, all of that is an overflow of the excess of God's self-giving love. And so you can see where this is going. The reason that the Trinity matters is because the Trinity helps us understand the incarnation. The fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. That God gave of himself. He emptied himself and took the form of one of us. Uh, that, by the way, that's a picture of a Persian Madonna and Jesus. Okay? That This is what distinguishes us both from the Jewish and the Muslim faiths. Because we believe that God came to rescue us. That we are insufficient in and of ourselves to reach God. And so God did not stay distant. God did not stay aloof. God did not stay far away. God came to us when we could not go to God. And that is hugely different. That's why it's cool that Muslims believe all of those things about Jesus, but it doesn't go far enough. It's Like, it's really cool, and it's great to begin building conversational bridges, begin building relationships, but at the end of the day, it matters that God is most basically love, not transcendent. It matters that God actually became one of us, didn't just give us some scriptures and say, figure it out, hope you get it right. It matters. And this is the sticking point between Christians and Muslims. Uh, when, I was, when I was talking with uh, my Muslim friend about all of this kind of stuff, and we were, we were having a great time and connecting about all kinds of stuff, and then he said, but of course, you know, God doesn't have a son. And I was like, well, of course, I believe Jesus has got And He was like, mm. Yep, that's it. That's that's where, that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And this is what shapes everything that comes after this. This is why, this is why we say that we need to be like Jesus. Because when we be like Jesus, we are being most fully like God. We are being what we were created to be. Okay, very quickly. Um, where we disagree. Is God Trinity? Is Jesus God? These are not minor questions. These are not simply intellectual assent. These shape our this shape these shape everything that come after this. So until these questions are resolved, uh, where we can't agree. Uh, obviously, we have different views of the Bible. We hold it as authoritative. They hold it as good, but not as good as the Quran. And that means that our sacred histories diverge, which we already mentioned earlier, right? There are places where we say, well, but the Bible says. And they say, oh, yeah, but the Quran says. And we say, yeah, but the Bible says. We just need to know that that's going to happen. Uh, this is an interesting one, I thought. Islam is less social, and what I mean by that is that, like, we, we come here and do things like this and, like, go to church and sing together and worship and all of that, but Muslim worship is actually, for the most part, pretty private. Uh, even when you go to the mosque, you're kind of just, like, you're praying with other people, but, like, they don't sing at the mosque. Uh, they, they go and they recite prayers, and then they listen to a sermon, and that's it. So it's, it's it has less of that, like, connected social element. I mean, they still, like, eat together and things like that, but it's, I don't know, It's uh, the practices are less social. The practices are more individual. Uh, and then the last one that I think is a really big difference is the assurance of salvation. Um, at the end of the day, a Muslim person does what they think God wants them to. They submit themselves to God, and then they hope that God forgives them. But there there isn't any final assurance of that. They don't have any way of knowing until the last day. And in the Christian tradition, it's very clear that if you call on the name of Jesus, that you are saved. And that, that that is where you find immediate forgiveness of sin, pardon for everything you've done, that, re- that all it takes is repentance. And that's it. And so that that's a big, big, big difference. Uh, and, and again, it can be a really good place to begin a conversation. So, yeah, Mike. Uh Yeah, the whole 72 virgins thing and all of that. I I don't think that that's orthodox Islam. Um I think that that is what the person who wants them to kill themselves teaches them. Uh so, but but I don't know for sure. I will say that the I what what my well my Muslim friend told me is that there's a passage that talks about 72 virgin virgins, but that's actually not a very good translation of it. And the actual right translation is that like a gar a paradise garden or something like that. Um, but again, if you want someone to kill themselves and you're like garden seventy two virgins, you're gonna go with the seventy two virgins translation. Um, so, uh, how not to build a friendship? Things you should probably not do: don't denigrate Allah. Um, again, especially because from a historical perspective, that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that could just be really insulting. Again, the same way, if, like someone was denigrating your, like your God, right? You'd not be like, hey, let's hang out. Um, don't don't assume that because they're Muslim, they're violent. Uh, don't assume Muslims hate Americans. This is what I was gonna. We brought up the media earlier. Uh, so my friends are from Iran, and they had a they had a cousin come visit them and live with them for a while, and he worked at a Burger King down the street from them, and he called the dad. Every night after, he's like, "Will you please come pick me up?" And the dad was like, "No, you can walk home. Like you're you're here. You gotta earn your way. Like you know whatever." And so he found out after several weeks of this that the kid was just like terrified to walk home every night. And I mean, it isn't Kettering. Like it's not a bad part of town, you know. And finally, the dad said, what are, what are you so afraid of?" And he said, "Well, everyone in America has guns." And the dad was like, "What? <laughs> like what are you talking about?" And he thought America was Hollywood. He thought that we all lived in Die Hard and that everyone just went around shooting each other all the time. Okay? Um, now, my point in all of that is we're all misrepresented by our media. Okay? And, again, the news, the, 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 the fundamental purpose of the news is to keep you watching long enough for them to show you advertisements. Okay? So just remember that. Um, remember that what you see is always going through a filter, and it, and and particularly if you're watching media of some kind, whether that's a Hollywood movie or the news or whatever, its its primary purpose is to get money from you, uh, in some some form or fashion. Uh, and that's maybe real cynical of me, but I haven't seen a lot to uh, to dissuade me from that. So just uh, again, the Muslim people I've talked to, most of them most of them wish that there was not so much hatred between America and the rest of of the world. So and then finally, don't confuse culture. And religion. Um, I know that that's hard. It takes a lot of practice, uh, but figure out what are the cultural things and what are the religious things. And, and there's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of times you're going to get it wrong. Um, you'll just figure it out. So, all right. I've again, kept you late. I almost got through everything I was wanting to. Uh, if you want to stick around and talk, I we didn't really get a lot of chance to ask questions or to, to dialogue back and forth. So I'm going to stick around for a little bit. Happy to talk to you more about this. But uh, next week, we have Ash Wednesday. So I hope you come back for that. And then the week after that, we're doing Mormonism. So uh, we're in for a good time. So thank you all very much. I appreciate your time. And uh, we'll see you all next week for Ash Wednesday.